Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. In 2018, as part of the National Suicide Prevention Trial, it was identified that the national approach to promoting help-seeking, mental health and suicide prevention in schools needed to be strengthened to include place-based approaches relevant to and appropriate for First Nations young people living in the Darwin region. Headspace schools were commissioned to co-design a resource which supported young people to build the skills required to help-seek using a development process that facilitated local ownership, knowledge and experience. This resulted in the creation of the Our Way, Our Say program. Playing an integral part in the development of this program, this week's podcast guest, Michelle Oliphant, has worked in the Northern Territory for over 20 years in the youth, wellbeing and education sectors. Since joining Headspace Schools in 2017, she has worked with many schools and communities to achieve their vision for improving the social and emotional wellbeing outcomes of their students, staff and community members in an inclusive and culturally responsive way. Michelle joins us to share her passion for the development of place-based approaches, achieving the best outcomes for all young people, and supporting an equitable, community-driven approach to delivering well-being and suicide prevention services to all skills. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for taking some time to have a chat with us. Thanks for having me. That's okay. Michelle, tell us about the country. Well, let's, let's start with the country we're on. Do you want to do a little acknowledgement to start with? I very much would. Thank you for that. I would like to acknowledge the Yigambi saltwater people as the traditional owners of the lands that we're meeting on today, the beautiful lands, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Beautifully said. Uh, beautiful land, a lot of water coming down water. at the moment, but that's okay. We're all safe. So so tell us, Michelle, let's talk about you and the background of where you grew up and what, where you've been based and professionally what you've been up to in your life. So I'll just talk about the past 30 years. I okay. don't need to go any further than that. For about the past 30 years, I've had the privilege of living and working on Larrakia Saltwater Country And probably for about the past 20 years of that, I've been working in the youth mental health space and the mental health in schools space. What an exciting space to be in. What made you want to get into it in the first place? I think 
you know, I started my career out as a youth worker and I spent a lot of time working with young people, street work and court support and seeing a lot of the social things that were impacting on young people that were in turn impacting on their mental health. And when I had my kids of my own, I took that opportunity to do a teaching degree because I thought teaching would be somehow easier (laughs) and then realised how challenging it was. And so it was just a natural combination to combine what I'd learnt in my time as a youth worker with thinking about all the impacts of young people at school. And I ended up landing in a pilot called Kids Matter and being the first sort of trialling of projects in schools in the Northern Territory for Kids Matter, it was an amazing opportunity that I just sort of landed in. Congratulations on that and what an exciting project and we're obviously very keen to hear all about, about this project and the Our Way, Our Say program as well, which we're looking forward to hearing about. Great. Tell us, how did all this come, up, come apart? How did, how did it come to fruition and the opportunity? So over my career, I'd done lots of work in the, you know, left Kids Matter, moved on, ended up working in the Department of Ed, still working in the wellbeing in school space. And when I was in the Department of Ed, I had the opportunity to travel all around the Northern Territory and work in lots of remote communities and and as well as on Larrakia country. And I got to see for myself that there were so many examples of mental health frameworks, national frameworks, national programs that were being run and delivered that didn't seem to be hitting the mark for the kids in the Northern Territory and the schools in the Northern Territory that I was working with. And so when BU came, I managed to land the role of NT coordinator for BU and come across to Headspace Schools and... Coming out of, I guess, the constraints of government back into an NGO, being part of what was being developed there, one of the things that happened along the way was I was doing lots of work in the suicide postvention space. And at that time, when I was working, was also at the same time of the launch of the National Suicide Prevention Trials. So... I'd been doing lots of work in postvention in remote communities and there had been a number of really public suicide deaths. And at that time we'd been working with school communities in the Catherine region where there'd been the death of a non-Aboriginal young woman and it had received a lot of media attention But at the same time, we were also working in the same community where there'd been two further deaths by suicide of young Aboriginal women and it hadn't received the same level of engagement with media, with support and so on and so forth. And we'd been doing a lot of work and we essentially got tapped on the shoulder because the the National Suicide Prevention Trial had a trial site in Darwin That trial site was focused on the Darwin and Greater Darwin region and the cohort was young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we were asked to come and speak about the work that we were doing because the members of that steering committee were really concerned about this discrepancy that they were seeing in the level of response and support and engagement around supporting young First Nations people and their families, community members, the school staff, and they really wanted to know 
what are you seeing out there? What's being done? What resources exist? Because we're not seeing them and we don't think that there are localised place-based resources that are actually catering for our families and young people. That's, I mean, it's really interesting hearing that. I'd love to know more about what are some of the challenges that the kids, the youth are facing up there and the people, the Larrakia people, the Indigenous kids, but also non-Indigenous. What are some of the challenges are they facing up there? Is it isolation? Is it, like you mentioned, lack of access to services? There's bullying is there what sort of things are they confronted with on a yeah day? look it's a multi-layered thing i think generally whenever you're in regional rural remote very remote that lack of service is massive and i think so that that applies to everyone you know whoever they are where the further out you live we just don't have that level of resourcing but also the the territory is a very transient population get lots of people moving around, going from one community to another and coming and going. So I think that there's a, a, a kind of general blanket statement would be we have lack of service. But if you overlay on top of that, our level of First Nations people, we probably have the highest proportional representation up in the Territory. Yet our services are not responsive to that. They don't, you know, it doesn't matter. I've seen it so many times in so many school communities where, you know, even back in the 2000s when I was in Kids Matter and we were looking at social-emotional learning programs for schools, none of them catered for the fact that a lot of these families and, and staff members, community members and students, English was their first, second, third, fourth, fifth language. The cultural, you know, they are a collectivist culture. The way they operate is very different. But the resources that we were rolling out and recommending just wasn't fit for purpose. So I think that is across the board. It's not just in the work I was doing. It's in everything. And I think when you have this very transient population of people coming into communities and servicing them, we're often... This might be a person's first experience of coming to a First Nations community. They don't know the protocols. They don't know how to engage. And you put on the overlay of that, of the impact of colonisation. Mm. That's not a past thing. That's a constant thing. You know, we had the intervention not that long ago. People are still operating under basics cards, you know, the level of incarceration. So we're in a discriminatory system anyway. So you take that and all those socio-political layers and you overlay on top of it just the basic resources and ways of engaging and understanding not being there, you've got the perfect storm really. Services trying to deliver but just not knowing what they needed to do to deliver appropriately and not engaging community in that story. I mean, you've you mentioned you have over 20 years experience in, in the youth wellbeing education sector. It, it, that's been all focused throughout the Northern Territory, correct? Correct. So over that time, what, what things have you noticed, what things have you seen that have improved over your time of this as it relates to mental health awareness, suicide prevention? Is there anything that you've seen during your time that's really worked or that's getting better? Look, I think, you know, as with the, the suicide prevention trial, there, there is more and more dialogue going on about the need for localised place space contextualised, community engagement, trauma-informed practice... Co-design. Co-design, the understanding of, 
you know, clinical governance and cultural governance both needing to have the same level of re relevance and engagement. Like I think we are slowly understanding that you can't just come in and be an expert. You have to recognise the expertise of the people on the ground. So I, I suppose that is a big change and we have come a long way. But I think, you know, politics impacts everyone in every way. And I, you know, I, I cannot say strongly enough the impact of the intervention that happened in the Northern Territory put us back a really long way. You know, we did have communities were becoming more autonomous and then they got this big, big brother overlay and these messages about that were really deficit messages about families not being able to look after their kids and kids being removed. We still have, you know, nearly 100% of young people in Dondale are First Nations young people, kids in care, First Nations. Now, this isn't about First Nations people. This is about politics and the system so we have this understanding that what we're doing isn't right, but I feel like the political system isn't, isn't in touch with that as quickly as it needs to be and that impact of the political cycle and the funding cycle doesn't recognise that if what you're needing to do is place-based, localised, build relationship, engage, listen, deeply listen... That's not in the lifespan of a political cycle. These things, if we're the people coming in, we have an onus to take the time it takes to build those things. It doesn't really make sense, does it, some of that stuff? And doing the grassroots approach, obviously, and building it from there, the foundations, with the people that are at the centre of this is certainly the answer. Yeah. This is something that you're a part of with the project that you're leading. Do you just want to tell us a bit about the project and the people you're working with? Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. So, as I said, you know, we we came into the trial and really we just came to present to the steering committee, which I, I sort of called the who's who at the time. It was chaired by Minister Wyatt and our local Minister of Health, Minister Files, and it had anyone and everyone who was someone in the space of, you know, First Nations wellbeing and suicide prevention in the room. So it was wow. quite a formidable group of people who were really wanting to make change. And we were essentially asked what resources exist for Darwin young people, their families around suicide prevention. And we had to say, look, we, we're not seeing in schools, which is where we were working, we're not seeing the resources. They're not there. And it, it almost, you know, you feel such shame being in the space for so long and going, what, why aren't they there? And so we were effectively asked at that point in time, the trial had been running for a couple of years, but they were there were still not any outputs at that point. And we were asked to make a resource. And we were given a very short timeline and a tiny budget. And we were told, you need to just go out and make a suicide prevention resource for all those people. And we went away and went, oh, wow, that's a, that goes against all our kind of principles of the way you should do practice. So we essentially went away and I talked to all my stakeholders and people that I knew and I said, what do you reckon? I talked to, you know, 
Kristen Douglas and people in Headspace schools and said, what do you reckon? Should we do this? Like this is, this is high risk to take on a project in a way that we know we probably can't meet the best practice. And when we spoke to people about it, what they said to us is they said, well, we agree. It's not an ideal set of circumstances and funding buckets often are not and timeframes often are not. But they said, we'll see what you can do in the time you've got. So as I said, I was still the manager of the BU program at that point. There was no budget for me to step out of role. So it was almost a piece of work I had to do. Well, it was a piece of work I had to do over and above. And I went and I engaged a cultural consultant and I I basically ran some workshops with all my stakeholders who I already had in schools. So that was the point where we said, okay, we'll keep it as – we'll be as consultative as we can in the time frame that we can. And so we worked with, you know, lots of people who were working in schools, Clontarf, STARS, engagement staff, Aboriginal and Islander education workers, teachers, school counsellors, as many people as we could – and we ran a bunch of consultation sessions. We brought with us a few models. We wanted the workshops not just to be about what we could get from the school staff around what did they see would be the biggest help in suicide prevention for their student staff and community members, but we also wanted to give them something back. You know, at, at Headspace Schools, at what our heart is, is in providing mental health education and support. So we wanted to make sure that those first workshops were a two-way conduit of information. So we did. We ran those sessions and we also engaged uh, a group called Skinny Fish Music who we knew were doing amazing work with young people and First Nations artists and they we had recently seen them do some youth engagement workshops, some hip-hop workshops. So we thought, okay, we know they make cool resources. I'm less cool. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a well-being mental health educator. I need some cool factor here if we're going to make a resource. So we brought them into the space as well. And we ran these sessions and we got a whole lot of amazing information. We used the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association Social Emotional Wellbeing Wheel model as a model to use to consult. We also, so we basically went, here's this amazing model that showcases all the things that impact on a First Nations young person wellbeing. And we got all the information out of it that we could to say, what factors are impacting your kids? What would help them deal with it? What are the issues that you're facing? We then went back to the, the Suicide Prevention Trial Committee with what we'd found and we said to them, okay, we've got some consultation. We're going to go away and make the resource with Skinny Fish Music. And we got smashed. You know, at that steering committee meeting, they were just like, you haven't consulted. You, you know, there are so many people that you should be working with and you haven't worked with these people, these people, these oh. people, these people. Wow. And it was true. We knew when we took that bucket of money that we, we probably wouldn't. So we tried our very best to go as quickly as we could, remembering from yeah. announcement of the project to handing in the resource, we had six months, wow. which in any time frame to do a consultation and produce a resource, 
Yeah. It's not very it's long. But we did it and we went away, we consulted and then with Skinny Fish, because they'd been with us at every step of the consultation, they at least had heard the messages and then it was time to take it to young people and to take the messages we'd heard from all the community members and staff members that we had managed to consult with to see what young people thought. And again, young people are very difficult to engage and to get authentic youth voice in a short time frame. And if you've ever worked with schools, it's really challenging to do that. So on the day that we were trying to, we had film crew in, we knew what we were doing, we'd run some, oh yeah, go back a step, we ran some workshops in schools and we got young people Broadly, I did discover that engaging with classrooms full of year seven young men was not my forte. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have as many tips and tricks up my sleeve as I thought. But yeah, we did all that and then then we made the video. So all that was before the video was even, because the first phase was the video. Yeah. But you had to do all that in order to get to the point of being able to... Make the video. The video video. was the resource. That was the output. Yep. So... Skinny Fish then worked with young people that they had engaged with as well in the hip-hop project that they'd been doing and the video represented all the voices that we had heard in the consultation to showcase what were the things that people really wanted to say would help when, you know, would, would, would support young people to deal with all the things that we talked about earlier So this video ended up being a seven-minute video and it showcased what I would say are the key things that the social emotional, the AEPA wheel showcase, you know. It's things like connection to country, connection to kin, connection to language, feeling a sense of community, you know, that recognition of all the cultural, socio-political determinants that impact. They were all the things that... Everybody we spoke to said these are the things that are going to help us, listening to us, engaging with us in a way that considers all the impacts that build a holistic sense of social-emotional well-being. And the video essentially tried to showcase all those things in seven minutes and it used footage all around Darwin and it used – we Skinny Fish did an amazing piece of work with a local – Larrakee, a young woman who sang a song over the top of the video. And and we brought that video back. So in six months we did that, brought that back and took it to – the steering committee also had a a working group structure and the working group was all the really key stakeholders who were doing the work in the Territory, particularly in the Archo world and all the really key First Nations workers in the space – So we took the video back to them and we were pretty nervous and we talked about it in Headspace Schools and we said, what do we think about this? We'd put it through uh, clinical governance in Headspace. We'd put it through all our key stakeholders. We'd put it through, obviously, our cultural consultant. But I wouldn't say that we had a cultural governance framework that sat with that. But anyway, we did all that. And we felt comfortable that the video would do no harm. That was, I guess, our bottom line, right? That, that was the bottom. It was yeah. just as long as we didn't, didn't yeah. offend anybody. Didn't Shame, right? But 
that was what we decided. We thought yeah. the video was great. We thought it was unique. We didn't think there was anything of its kind. But what we also thought was really and truly is a seven-minute video that showcases many protective factors. How are young people going to know that that's what we're doing? They'll look at the video. They'll see some local things. They'll see some cool people. They'll hear some good stories. But how will they... We don't, adults don't know how to embed it, help-seeking, how to embed these micro-skills that were embedded within it. How can we expect young people to know what to do with this video? How can we expect educators to know what to do with this video? So when we gave it back, we gave it back to the working group and we said, we think this video is good, we think it's got gold in it, but we think tapping that gold and finding it is going to be a challenge for anyone so our recommendation to you is that you don't use it unless you do work to embed an implementation guide, a training that actually unpacks the concepts in the video. So how did they take it when you played? The, I mean, were they wrapped with it? Were they? People liked the video. People, it resonated with them. It was place-based. It was localised. It did say the things that were reflective of, of the stories people were telling us, but it wasn't co-design. I want to be really clear, it wasn't even close to co-design and people knew that. We knew that and we didn't shy away from that. We were really transparent and we, I guess, said, well, what what can you possibly do? It doesn't honour a co-design process to have a funding cycle like that and a, and a time frame and budget. So essentially... People liked the video, they understood, they agreed with us and so we said, well, our recommendation is you fund and it doesn't have to be us. We're not, you know, we're not saying we put up our hand for this but we are saying someone needs to do the piece of work if you want to use it. So that led to phase two of the project. And phase two for us, I felt much better about because we learnt so many lessons from the making of the video that we wanted to have a go at and I think we were starting to understand the importance of of co-design needing to have a place within there. I mean when we took it back to the working group I wouldn't they although they liked the video no one was ecstatic about the process, but it wasn't just our project. It was all the projects. It, it, do you think it sort of it was done back to front a little bit? Like, do you think you should have, like, if you had your time again, would you think co-design, go out there, work on it, and then do the video as a result of that? Or do you think the video first was a, was a good way to then get the backing and the support to identify what needs to be done? Well, we knew they... Those conversations we did have before taking the money. Okay. We knew that it wasn't... Ideal. Ideal. And that was when we said, what we're going to try and do is our very best, as much as we possibly can within the time frame we've got, recognising the limitations so that we can show a start. So we, I guess in some ways, felt like we achieved all we could with yeah. what we had and we we weren't wedded to being the deliverers of phase two but I guess what had happened over that period of time is our niche is doing these, piece, these kind of pieces of work. 
So we felt very privileged that we were funded for phase two because people at least that showed that people wanted to see if we were really going to put our money where our mouth was in phase two and do it properly this time. And we put, you know, I mean, you never get the budget or the time frame you want, but in phase two we were unequivocal that we needed the project officer to be funded. We couldn't not – all the money in phase one went to paying for the video resource and the cultural consultant. That was it. There was no extra money. How how did you do the in the second phase with the co-design training program? The how did you make sure that it was culturally appropriate and evidence informed? Was it a matter of making sure you included the Larakia people and a, a number of the key groups around the implementation of this and in the design of it? I mean, how did you make sure that that was appropriate for that? Yeah. So we. What we did, the very first thing I did as soon as we got funded was I went to my key stakeholders and particularly, you know, people who I'd lent on pretty heavily in the thinking about in the first phase and I asked them, when I'm setting up this new piece of work, what's the most important thing that I need to do to set it up good way, you know? How do I make this right? And they told me, you need to set up a cultural governance model that has the same weighting as your clinical governance. You need to include people in the the decision-making room. And, you know, I, I then asked around who should I be including and I also went to the chair of the Darwin Suicide Prevention Trial and I asked them who should I be putting on my, my governance group, my cultural governance group, And I pulled together a really large group of people that I invited into the space and asked them would they be willing to sit on what I called my First Nations reference group. And that was the first step. And from there it was... It was a journey, you know, like even though I started this by saying I have many, many years' experience in the space, I'd never done co-design And I'm not a First Nations woman. So there were many things and there are still many things that I did not know and I do not know. And I'll never forget my first meeting of the reference group. I'd spent ages really thinking I'm going to be asking these people to give Mm -hmm. themselves to me. So I think I need to give myself to them. And I wanted to tell them a story about me thinking that me sharing to them was was like a two-way thing where I was – well, what it actually did was it made them think that that's what I was expecting of them and it, it ended up mm. – I, I mean, I learned so many messages every time but I guess the very first thing that I learned from that first – what I think was a fairly disastrous reference group meeting was that it doesn't matter what my intent is – it matters what the outcome is. Mm. You know, in the same way as the history of colonisation and many, many, many white people before me, lots of people have got really good intent that has had a really negative outcome. And I think, you know, that's a message I've carried with me every day when I think about doing things and sometimes I get it right and sometimes I don't. But 
I came into that first reference group meeting. I had a video. I talked about myself. I made some disastrous mistakes and I think at the end of it and I played the video and I just went, you know, tell me what you think an implementation manual should look like. With Like they – I had no idea what I was asking them. I hadn't narrowed down my question. I hadn't narrowed down my evidence. I hadn't done my homework. I just brought a group of people into the room who were experts like I – have had the amazing privilege of working with cultural experts, youth experts, mental health experts, you know, community voice. The, I had everyone in the room. The right people were there. I just didn't know what to do with them at first. Wow. What a, what a great opportunity to learn though. And like you said, you had that open mindset to do that. As a result of that learning experience, I take it you took it away and you worked on it and what you've created now is something that teaches people the micro skills needed, is that right? To help with at times of crisis but also prevention and, and promotion of health and well-being, is that right? That's correct. We took a seven-minute video and we turned it into an over 165-page facilitator guide with over 23 hours worth of <laughs> social emotional lessons we have we have elder voice in there we have larrakia youth voice in there we have a whole journey of all the micro skills that ultimately lead to help seeking and that took many 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 months hours time of consultation of sitting down of listening of learning of covid to really think about what are the things that this video is showing that we need to teach and it was about unpacking the evidence looking at the models even thinking about the model of, you know, the World Health Organisation model of mental health, the Western model, and thinking about that's the model that a lot of young people, First Nations young people are faced with when, you know, things aren't going well, service provision, they're going to be asked about that. So we, you know, thinking about we don't just want to embed, we don't just want to educate them on you know, social, emotional well-being from a First Nations perspective. We want them to understand all the perspectives so that they can be informed and they can make their own decisions and they know what people are asking of them. Yeah. Did it surprise you the amount of work involved in making a truly co-designed program and co-delivery? Was it surprising, like, the first time you really fu fully adopted it and took on the principles of it? Did it surprise you at the work involved and also did it surprise you at the, what, what you've come up with as a result of this? Yeah, look, I think it excited me and I think, I think the thing I often think about when I reflect on it is whilst a three-year journey of co-design might sound like a long time, when I think about the history of colonisation and even longer the history of, you know, First Nations people in this country, it's a tiny dot and it's a very small monetary investment when you think about how much money is being spent on other things. So in some ways I'd say it took a really short period of time and, you know, one of the amazing Larrakia healers who I work with on the um, reference group and now moving into the next phase on the Cultural Advisory Council, he said to me, Michelle, it takes what it takes. Mm. 
And that was just such a great thing to say because it meant I could be in the moment and just work with everything that came as it came and know these people have been doing this their whole lives and their whole (laughs) ancestors' lives. So this is a dot in the ocean of my life. It's such an important way and a process moving forward and anything that that's involving you know the people that the program's designed for is to make that inclusive and have their input into it. Tell me about the Our Way, Our Say program uh, and what you've come up with as it relates to, looks like you've got the elements in there, so it'd be cool to understand a little bit about that and how you came up with that. Sure. Well, firstly, I'd say it wasn't, I didn't come up with any of it. So, but yeah, so Our Way, Our Say came up because obviously we we were looking at all the evidence base and it was all there before us and essentially when covid hit you know the the reference group said to me because i couldn't get youth voice at that point originally they said you need to go away and work out what you're doing right and then come back to us and they said and don't just work out what you're doing go away and talk to young people listen to the young people hear what they've got to say and then come back to us when you've got something, we'll be ready. And they were always committed to this piece of work. So they, you know, they were patient with me. Yeah. And just at that point where I was about to go to youth consultation, COVID hit. And I couldn't get youth voice. And I wasn't going to try and do it on Zoom. I didn't think that was going to be the way for authentic engagement So I literally sat and looked at the models and one of the other models that I was lucky enough to have presented to me was the Larrakia healing model. So I was looking at a local model of holistic wellbeing, the AEPA national model and then the World Health Organization international model and I started thinking about the different layers and what does it mean to be place-based and I sat in the environment I sat on country thinking about this is what people have said, thinking about connection and I sat in the mangroves. I spent a long time thinking about all the voices I'd heard, what people had told me, what the evidence said and what does it mean to localise something. And I thought, well, I'm a literal person, I'm going to take it literally and I'm going to sit for a while in my place that I find myself in. And luckily for me, you know, looking at the Larrakia healing model gave me a beautiful way to start to think about and conceptualise and that's where I started to think about the elements. And while sitting in the mangroves, I'd also had the opportunity to look at the Menzies had done a model which was mental health is like a tree and Headspace had used it for the Unsafe campaign. And I think that model was actually modelled off the IEPA model too. And I was looking at this tree model, mental health is like a tree. And I was sitting in the mangroves and I went, the tree isn't right for here. It's almost not quite you know there's not enough in it and and I was thinking about the way every time I would go out to those mangroves the tide would be in the tide would be out people would be there different things would come and go and I thought no mental health isn't like a tree it's like a mangrove and mental health is like a mangrove ecosystem and that was where the elements started to form and then I started to have one-on-one conversations with my reference group members about how we could think about this and how we could think about that concept of risk and protective factors and how, you know, on any given day, 
you've got a whole lot of things in your ecosystem. Some things will be big, some things will be small, some changes will be perceptible, some some won't. And some things are going to make an enormous difference but no one might see it. And so I started to really talk to people about that idea and, and that was where, you know, going back and talking to people and how would this look and what would it work and where does this align with your thinking and how would young people perceive it? So that was the first element was water and thinking about what is mental health and then really thinking about what is the difference between mental health and social-emotional well-being. And lots of the people I'd spoken to had spoken of this idea that for a lot of First Nations people, mental health was stigmatised. For them, what mental health meant was being put in institutions for their cultural belief and their cultural knowledge, Mm. being considered to have a mental health disorder, an illness because they had different ways of thinking, viewing, perceiving and being in the world. So I didn't want to shy away from that. I wanted to talk about that because people I was talking to were saying, we want our young people to know that when someone asks them about mental health, that might not be what they mean, but that that might be what their family has experienced. So we wanted to, to have that conversation. So the mangroves was a way of introducing this idea and this concept of different things coming and going, concepts of mental health, concepts of social emotional wellbeing and risk and protective factors. So that first element explores all of that and by the end of it, young people get to define mental health or wellbeing or whatever they want to call it for themselves. Right. And by once they've finished that in that first element, their definition becomes the way that the facilitators have to talk about it for every other module. Whatever words they choose, whatever words they work out is how it comes about. Wow, that's really cool. What a great idea. And when I took it to youth consultation, they helped me with that. Young people really helped me understand because I took, I took it really broad to them and then I said, I want you to define mental health well-being in your way and they were like, but you haven't explained it to us, miss. Mm. How are we supposed to know, how are we supposed to define it? You need to put the theory in. Because I'd gone in going, oh, they don't want to hear about these models. They don't want to know definitions. That's too boring. And they called me on it and went, basically, this is 101 teaching. You don't ask us to do something when you haven't given us the ingredients to be able to do that. Mm. But it's good to get their input as well, hey, before... You know, you go telling them what it is and have their own ideas. But to see that rawness is really, really cool. So you went from water to then to land? To land. So first of all, they had to define it so they knew what they were talking about and they had to explore the models, understand it. The next bit of evidence base was all around the thing that sits in the social-emotional well-being wheel, which is identity, belonging, connection, And, you know, because I'm in the schools world, one of the things that gets very big buckets of money is the term engagement. Mm. Engagement and attendance. How do we get people into the room? So I wanted to explore the first thing is you've got to know what you're talking about. But the second thing is you have to be in a space where you feel comfortable enough to talk about it. So land was all about belonging, connection, inclusion, 
What makes a place my place, your place, our place? What makes a place be somewhere that we can be together where I see and appreciate you for who you are and vice versa? So place lets young people explore what makes them feel okay about being somewhere? What makes them feel okay about entering a space? What do they need to feel comfortable and connected? What of who they are do they want to see represented? You know, we all know for ourselves, if you come into a space and you don't know the rules and you don't see anyone who connects with you and you don't see anything that you're familiar with, are you likely to be able to have the right kind of conversation to go, hey, I'm not feeling okay or can I talk to you? No, you're not. So... Land is all about that, what makes a place our place. And I, I got to listen to lots of amazing people talk about that connection to country, talk about identity, talk about culture, talk about what makes people feel comfortable to be themselves. And again, if you overlay the history of colonisation, so many First Nations people have been, you know, discriminated against for being themselves so we also had to explore you can't expect people who are still undergoing those influences of colonization to just trust people so you you need to create a space and a place where you're building enough relationship to develop trust and you're not going to in any way harm that trust so land explores that all through a whole lot of interactive activities Yep, then we moved to fire. Fire. So you, you've got in there, you know what you want to talk about, you feel safe enough to be able to talk about it. But the next thing is when something enters your wellbeing ecosystem that isn't okay, what's the first thing that you experience? Emotion. You have an emotional response. So fire is all about understanding and recognising emotion and self-regulation. And we use the metaphor there of the difference between wildfire and cultural burn fire. So, you know, in the mangroves over that period of time of COVID lockdown where I got to sit in the space, I saw a lot of fire and I saw the difference between controlled fire and wildfire. And I talked again to my experts in this space. Tell me about cultural burn. Tell me about the connection between land and what happens. When you've got cultural burn, you're putting in fire breaks. You're purposefully doing all the things that are going to keep country strong, are going to build. And I was like, it's exactly the same thing for emotion. If you do the work and you recognise what's going to protect you in your ecosystem, whether that's, you know, getting good sleep, getting good food, whether that's talking to the right people who are going to help you calm down when you're feeling stressed, all the things that help you, you know, if you go to school and you haven't had good sleep, you haven't had good food and you walk in and you're in a place where you don't feel connected and then someone chips you or gives you a hard time you're likely to lose it much quicker 
than if you've actually had good sleep, had good food, all the other things. So we use this metaphor of cultural burn, what makes up your fire breaks, and we do fire burn snap. We do all sorts of different things we do to get young people to examine and understand their emotion and understand conflict and understand that conflict and stress is okay. But if you do your cultural burn, you're going to be able to manage those things. And they can relate to this too, can't they? Like it's so relatable as kids would love this. And the last one's air. Talk to us a little bit about that one. So air is all those socio-political determinants that sit outside of a young person's control. So one of the things, you know, particularly going back to talking about First Nations people, but First Nations young people especially, have a lot of things done to them that are outside of their control. But one of the things that we know is a protective factor is voice, having your say. So air is all about how to have a voice in a way that is okay and safe. And air explores this through the use of, you know, as I said, we work with Skinny Fish Music. We worked with them again for the bigger resource. We do a lot of work in voice around showcasing young people who have had a voice. We show them Black Lives Matter rallies in Darwin. We show, you know, Duan Hussain from In My Blood It Runs was the youngest First Nation, well, the youngest person ever to present at the UN. And we show the footage of what he says around, you know, you've got to stop putting us in jail. You've got to start teaching us in at school in culture and language. You've got to make things make sense to us in a way that we can connect to, you know. So showing, showcasing to them lots of different ways that you can have a voice and then allowing them to work through in whatever way it want, they want. They can just write a journal to themselves. They can do a meme. They can do a whole campaign but they get to – they can write a song. They can do hip-hop. They can do whatever. But we showcase you need to explore for yourself – what do you want to say? What impacts your well-being? What makes you not feel okay? And we allow them to explore how to have a voice about that. So air is all about that. So you can see we're starting mm. to build all these micro skills up to ultimately lead to help seeking. And that's the final piece of the puzzle. So there was a model that was developed for the pre- suicide prevention trial called the Strengthening Our Spirits model. Mm-hmm. Beautiful piece of artwork done by Duan Tony Lee, who is also on the advisory council. And this model, it it really looks at how to engage service providers in a culturally responsive way. So we use that model and worked obviously in the co-design process of thinking about, okay, we've got all these skills, but the next bit is help-seeking. And we know from everything, you know, that we've been hearing and talking about at this conference that that step to help-seeking is fraught and there are so many things that can occur along the way. And we explore this in Strengthening Our Spirits. We get young people to explore what do they notice when they're not okay What do they notice when their friends are not okay? We also get them to explore, and this was something that was really important to the reference group, that we explore the fact that sometimes young people 
even when they're really good friends with someone, they might not notice anything. And that comes back to in your ecosystem, sometimes massive things can happen but nothing looks different because it's all going on under the surface. And that's okay too because a lot of the mental health programs that we'd seen and knew all said if you notice a friend isn't okay, just ask them. But they didn't talk about the fact that sometimes you won't notice and that's okay too and allowing that to be explored. So, yeah, in strengthening our spirits, they go through all of that. They explore how do we ask someone else if they're not okay, especially if they're using wildfire, their Mm. emotions are out of control they're not easy to ask at that point. They might not be approachable or they might be withdrawn. So all of those things we explore and then ultimately we get young people to explore the services that are available to them, whether they're, you know, informal family services, friends, whatever, or formal services. We get them to look at what are barriers to service provision. We get services then will be invited in and young people will be able to share with the services what what they would need to be able to engage with them. What would it look like for them to engage with that service and what are the current reasons why they're not? And so, yeah, in Strengthening Our Spirits, they explore all the ways to unpack those barriers to help seeking using all the skills that they've learnt. So where are we at now with this? So now that that's all been done completed the program's ready to go are you almost at implementation of rolling it out so close so close so we're now in phase three of the project and as i sort of alluded to before we have an amazing first nations cultural advisory council that has um six of the original reference group members have come through annie eileen cummins duan tony lee amanda hart damien bonson Anne-Marie McLeod and Vanessa Harris have come through incredible subject matter experts. And we've also brought through Danila Dilber, our Archo, AMSANT, the Peak Aboriginal Medical Services and Larrakia Nation, who is the traditional owners org, to sit on that council. They came through and they're our advisory group and they're now in the process of helping us roll out to pilot. Wow. We're nearly so close to employing First Nations consultants to work with schools and we will be beginning the journey of piloting all these pieces to s- and evaluating. We have NAUS as our evaluator wow. and we're nearly off and away. And so how long does a pilot go for? We've So the funding is through to November 30. We've got... Oh. You know, again, COVID delay term one, complex, complex. But we're hoping to be running the sessions with 10 groups of students in Darwin schools over terms two and three, finishing up, evaluating it and seeing what, what outcomes it produces and also seeing whether the process, the governance structure... The way of working, that's the process is impo- as important yeah. as the outcomes if we want to think about this process of localising and making place-based resources. Is it upscalable? We know that we've got the international, national and local models. Are we able to work with other places and put their local models in and engage with their, you know, we used Larrakia artists, Larrakia elders, 
We engaged a workforce of people in this making of the product, a workforce of people in our governance structure. We want to see, can we replicate this? Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that would be really keen to see this succeed, obviously, and get this to roll out in other areas of, as well. So, I mean, the opportunity for this is really quite quite amazing. What's As you move to the future, obviously, we're excited to get this underway this year, which will be very exciting for you and a lot of work that you've put in. What's, what's happening for you moving forward? What exciting things? Obviously, this is a big part of it, but is there anything else that you want to share with us that you're up to? Anything else going on? Look, I think, you know, it's so exciting to be part of this piece. It's sort of hard to get out of the mangroves and get yeah. into another space. What I want to see, I'm pretty excited the staff that I've employed are young people and this idea of peer mentoring. Fantastic. I want to see this kind of work everywhere. I want to see, you know, Headspace schools and Headspace National doing this piece of work. I want to see this interface between what we do here in the community and how we educate people. I want to see it not just – it's not just about school students. It's about vulnerable young people who we know often aren't at school. I want to see that work go further to that. I want to see whether the, the things that are produced in the workshops, can they be taken into places like Headspace Centres and art shows and young people be able to almost take this – this is what we want to tell you about us to inform you on how you're going to work with us. I want to see that spread and evolve and and really grow. That would be my dream. And I want to see the local community take on this piece of work and, it, you know, me, me handing it back to the community will be the greatest day of all. Well, I can clearly see you're very passionate about this. I think we, I mean, it's, it's infectious how <laughs> excited you are for this and... And I mean, what yeah, what a what a what a great opportunity! And I can't wait to hear all about it and how it's going. How can people get in touch with you if they want to know more? Oh, they can get in touch with me through Headspace Schools, through Headspace. Yep. Okay, perfect. Was is there anything else you want to say in closing? Oh, I just want to say I want to acknowledge all the. I'd like to actually read you the co-designed acknowledgement of country. Let's do that. Great way to finish. Let's do that. All right, this is the Our Way, Our Say Acknowledgement of Country. Headspace would like to acknowledge the Larrakia people as the traditional custodians of the land we are meeting on today and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future and particularly to the Larrakia people who may be in the room listening to this today. We would like to acknowledge stolen generation members past, present and their descendants who through the process of invasion and colonisation have been dislocated from their homelands and now call Larrakia country their home. We pay our respects to all. We would also like to acknowledge all other First Nations people in the room with us today and particularly young people we value your cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. Our way, our say, acknowledges your voices, beliefs and values as being critical to building your well-being and to supporting you to have your say in your way. Wow. Beautiful. Well done. 
Well, Michelle, it's been very, very good having, very insightful having you on the show, talking to us, telling us about the great stuff you're up to. The program is very exciting, and I can, we, as I said before, we can clearly tell you're very passionate about what you do, which is awesome. Keep up the great work, and thanks very much for taking some time and coming and having a chat with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.